Well, um, over the last few months, actually over the last uh, two and a half years, I have been tiptoeing my way verse by verse through the book of Isaiah and having the feast of my life in it. And I can't tell you how much the Lord has ministered to me through this precious uh, prophet. And um, so just a few weeks ago, I went through Isaiah 53, which is that wonderful passage about the the coming um, atonement through the Messiah. And, um, And so it has been a blessing to me to be able to dig into the rich food that I was fed from the Lord and be able to share some of it with you. And when I I was preparing originally to preach from 2 Corinthians today because the passage that we had come up to seemed to fit very well with the theme of Easter. But as I dove into it and studied it more deeply, I realized that's not what this is about. (laughs) So it was plan B. And so I dove back into Isaiah 53 and I'm going to be sharing from Isaiah 53 this morning, just from a part of it, but I'm going to read the whole thing as we, uh, to, to get started, but then focus in on a few parts. This is Isaiah 53, the word of the Lord. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. 
and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, as I said, this is a long passage. But let me just point out, this is the last three verses of what we just read, 10 through 12. And the capitalized portions are where we're going. That's where we're headed in this sermon. We're going to do a little prep work, a little explanation of where we are, but then this is where we're going to hone in on these portions of of the passage so you can see it's not that much that we're going to be dealing with. The first question that we need to ask is, who is this about? Who is this him? Because there's no introduction. All of a sudden, he's just talking about someone. He is this. They, they do this to him. Who is this him? Well, the reason that it's ambiguous in this passage is because this isn't actually the beginning of the passage. The passage begins three verses earlier, but the people who put chapter divisions, and we don't believe that that was something inspired by the Holy Spirit, but the people who put the chapter divisions in, put, a, put this division in three verses after the passage began. So if you go back to 52.13, we have somewhat of an introduction to this passage. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, and so, and so, so on and so forth. So he's talking about my servant. Now even that though isn't really the introduction to this person that Isaiah 53 is about. Because Isaiah, because those words, behold my servant, that's not the first time they're found. They're found earlier in the prophecies of Isaiah in chapter 42 where he introduces his servant with the same words. Behold my servant. And he goes on and says many things about this promised one who is going to come and is going to be a covenant that God is going to give to his people. And so, and then from there, 42 through this passage 53 there are many passages that talk about this one that is coming so when we get to 53 we already know a lot about this person whoever it is who is coming who is promised and now in 53 we get to see something that he does that's very central to what he's all about there is no and now so, so who is this well there's no passage in all of the Old Testament that is quoted so frequently, so emphatically in the New Testament as this passage in Isaiah 53 and the end of 52. And it's all focused on Jesus Christ. So we find out in the New Testament that Isaiah 53 is all about Christ. In fact, there's a story about it. One day in the book of Acts chapter 8, there's an Ethiopian eunuch who's riding down the road and he's reading the Bible and he's reading Isaiah 53 and he can't figure out what it's about. And God brings Philip, one of the early church deacons, to him. And Philip walks up to him and 
Ethiopian eunuch said, I can't figure out what this is about. Now there's an open door, right? <laughs> Last week we talked about God opening doors of opportunity to tell people about Christ. Well, there's an open door. And Philip was there. And Philip, it tells us, Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Isaiah 53 is about Jesus. It was written six or seven hundred years before Christ. But it's all about Jesus because it was written by a God who not only knew what was going to happen, but was the one who makes things happen. Now there are three primary themes in Isaiah 53. We're only going to focus on one today. But I want to introduce you to the other two themes. They're very important themes in Isaiah 53. The first theme is humiliation and suffering. The second theme is substitution and atonement. And the third theme is triumph and reward. So let's look at the, we're going, as I say, we're going to focus on the third theme, triumph and reward. But let's look first at the other two themes. Now I'm not going to be able to say much about these or else I'm going to use up all my time. So you're going to have to listen really well as we look at these precious words spoken about these themes. So this one who is sent, this one who we know is Christ, the first thing is the first theme about him in this passage is his humiliation and his suffering. Language used here as vivid and poignant as any in the English language. Listen to what it says. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now when we read those verses or hear those verses read, it's easy for us to focus on the injustice, on the mistreatment, on the abuse that he suffered. But the most surprising thing that Isaiah 53 says about this suffering is found in verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And to put him to death. What? Why? What is the purpose and the point of such terrible humiliation and suffering? Well, that's where we get to the next point. The point of substitution and atonement. The second theme. And let me tell you something. Nowhere in the Bible is... This theme so clearly and emphatically sp spoken about 
than right here in Isaiah 53. If you want to talk to someone who questions this idea that Christ suffered the wrath of God for the sake of sinners, this is where to bring him. Isaiah 53. So let's read these verses together. This is the why of why he suffered such horrific treatment. Verse 4, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And that, that verse is quoted in the New Testament not pertaining to physical healing from diseases, but to healing that's far greater than that. The healing of the soul, the healing of our broken relationship with God. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord put our sin upon him. He was, verse 8, he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Why was he stricken? Why did he suffer? For the transgression of my people. Not for his own transgression, for the transgression of his people. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, and you know the system that God had set up in the Old Testament, where an animal would die for the sake of men's sins, and they would, the priest would lay his hands upon the animal, ceremonially transferring the sins of, his, of the people upon the animal, and then the animal would be slain. And this language is carried over into this prophet talking about the Redeemer. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. We'll get to that later. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. So by what he does, he makes many counted as righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. We don't bear the burden of our iniquities, Christ bears the burden of our iniquities. And finally in verse 12, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, you know, we are used to Isaiah 53, but put all these verses all together, it's, it's like a drumbeat that beats powerfully and more powerfully, saying over and over again, Christ bore the penalty for sin that we all deserved. After reading Isaiah 53, there is no more mystery about how sinful human beings can be reconciled to a holy God. 
It is through the death of Christ in our place by which we are counted righteous. He stepped into the gap between us rebels and our just destruction, offering himself as our substitute, bearing the weight of our sins. The only mystery that's left is how God could love us like this. The story doesn't end there, though. The story ends with triumph, with reward, with exaltation. And that's what we're going to focus in on. And so we're going to read six statements that he makes to this effect, and I'll just comment on each one as we go through. The first one is found in verse 52, in chapter 52, verse 13. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now this wasn't in a reading. On Friday evening at our Good Friday service, I preached those three verses in Isaiah 52. And we talked about these verses. When it says that this one would be high and lifted up and exalted, he's using language that is only used about God in the rest of the Old Testament. And it's talking about what will happen to him as a result of the work that he does, the atoning work that he accomplishes. He will be high and lifted up. He will be exalted. So I won't spend any more time on this one. Except to say what we'll get to in a minute, that this is, seems to be where Paul got the language that he uses in Philippians chapter 2 when he talked about how Christ made himself nothing, took the form of a servant, likeness of men, even to the point of death on the cross, and then God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. The second statement that we're going to look at is, verse, is in verse 10. He shall see his offspring. This one as a result, and all of these, all these are a result of what he did. A result of his atoning work. Now we already saw what we get from his atoning work. And we often focus on what we get from Christ's atoning work. But we're going to focus a little bit on what he gets from his atoning work. So verse 10, he shall see his offspring. Now, obviously, Jesus didn't have any blood descendants. This passage is talking about his spiritual descendants, his spiritual children. His life, far from being futile, will be the most fruitful life ever lived. Far from being childless, he will have children from every race on the earth, from every era of history, from every language, from every status in life. Children as many as the stars in the sky and the sand in the seashore, for his children are the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And Jesus gets the benefit of seeing all this happen, watching his harvest grow. As he has sown the seed, he gets to watch it grow and flourish. 
the precious fruit of his sacrifice. For this is why he did it, that he might give life to his people. The second phrase also, second statement also in verse 10, he shall prolong his days. Now I agree with those who believe that this verse is referring to the resurrection. He shall prolong his days. Having died, he shall prolong his days. It reminds us, I think John picks up the same theme in Revelation 1.18 where, where we hear these words coming from the lips of Jesus and this vision that John has where Jesus says, I died and behold, I am alive forever. The same thing. Having died, he shall prolong his days. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 3 and 4, it says this, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, just like the Old, scriptures, Old Testament scripture said, Christ died for our sins. Obviously, there's no place like Isaiah 53. So Isaiah 53 is one of the main places he has in mind there when he says that. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So not only does Paul say that the Old Testament scriptures foretell his death, his atoning death on the cross, but they also say his, the Old Testament scriptures foretell his resurrection from the dead. Well, when you look at the Old Testament, you go, where are those verses? And so this New Testament verse sort of prompts us to go scurrying through the Old Testament looking for prophecies of the resurrection. And I think the best place we come to is Isaiah 53. Not just this one phrase, but several phrases. Having died, he shall prolong his days, but also... Having died, he shall see his offspring. Well, you don't see your offspring if you're still dead. And having died, he shall see and be satisfied. And having died, he shall receive the plunder of his great triumph. Again, all these things implying that someone is still alive. And yet, after describing his death. And so I think here we have... Old Testament passages referring to the resurrection. Verse 10. Also, this last statement in verse 10. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now you might think that this one belongs in a different category. That it's talking just about his success and not about his reward. However... This statement seems to be talking about what happens after his atoning work, not talking about his atoning work itself. Listen to the context. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, so in his, when he does his atoning work, then some things will result. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, 
and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So you see, this is a result. This one is talking about the result of his work. In 52.13, it talks about his success, but it's talking about his atoning work. But here, his success is talking about what happens after his atoning work. So, the will of the Lord will, shall prosper in his hand refers to what Jesus is doing now, after his work on earth and his work at the cross. In other words, as a result of his atoning work, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You know, one of the things that makes Christianity different from all other religions is that behind it, there is a living Christ making it happen. That's just not true for anything else. Now, I don't mean that the living Christ is behind all of Christianity making it all happen. There is plenty of deadness in, the, in Christianity. There's plenty of groups where there, you, you, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to say Christ is making that happen except in some providential way where he's in control of everything. But, as, as uh, McLaren, great preacher McLaren said, the sole explanation of the vitality of Christianity and the sole reason which makes its message a gospel to any soul is Christ's death in the world, I'm sorry, Christ's death for the world and present life in the world. So it's by his atoning death and by his present life living in his people, living in his church, at work in the hearts of mankind, here now on the earth. That's what enlivens it. That's what makes it happen. That's what animates the church, the people of God. Verse 11, the fifth of these statements. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Now, the, the part that I'm going to focus in on is the he shall see and be satisfied. But I included the first part because it's sort of important for this one to understand the context. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So what's that mean? Well, Jesus is obviously not sadomasochistic. He doesn't enjoy the suffering. It's not that, you know, it, you can't remove the middle portion of this verse and just say, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. You know, it's not like he finds satisfaction in the suffering. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Now what does he see? He sees the sinners that he redeemed. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous. That's what he sees. He sees those whose sins he bore. Those whose who are now accounted righteous before God. And seeing that, he is satisfied. Whatever he had to endure, the darkness, 
the pain, it's all replaced by the sheer joy of the result of what his work accomplished. By bearing our iniquities, he makes us his righteous people. It, you know, in Hebrews 12, 2, it says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And that phrase, despising the shame, doesn't mean that he hated going through it. It means that he counted it as nothing compared to the joy that he was going to derive from accomplishing it. He discarded it as irrelevant to suffer as he suffered because of the vast benefit that it was going to produce of our salvation. That's the kind of joy that he finds in rescuing his loved ones from sin and death. He shall be satisfied. He will see and he'll be satisfied. And how gratifying it must be for him to behold the fruit of his labors, the fruit of his suffering. It was agony to bear. Think of Gethsemane. He sweat drips of blood just in anticipation. But that was as nothing compared to his joy in seeing sinners redeemed seeing hearts won, seeing children gather. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather your children, but you wouldn't come. But now the door has been opened, and now his people can come. And what gratify, gratification he gets from seeing that. And verse 12, the last one. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And here we have the language of a triumphant parade where the conqueror comes and receives the plunder receives the spoil of his conquest. And in the case of Christ, he faithfully descended to the lowest depths in order to fulfill the Father's will to the nth degree. And because of that faithful obedience, God exalts him to the highest heights and gives him a treasure. Now this theme of receiving treasure is actually found in a few places in the New Testament as well. Christ receiving treasure in a parable that he told. In Mark 3, 27, he says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So we see here that there, first there has to be a war between the master of the house and the one who comes and, and he subdues the master of the house, ties him up, and then he can plunder his house. And of course, this parable 
is about Jesus coming to Satan's house where Satan has stolen God's treasures. And so God, Jesus must first bind the strong man and then he can plunder his house. He can go around, he can rescue all those who have been kidnapped by the evil one. All those who are chained down in the basement. He can go and break all the doors down and, and free them from the chains that, that are there. And, and they can come out and he can collect them and he can be, he can receive the treasure that he, that was stolen from him and, and uh, receive that as part of his reward for the great accomplishment of triumphing over the devil. And he rewarded, the father rewards him with these treasures because, this verse goes on to say, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus is not exalted to heaven because he was humiliated, although he was. He was not exalted to the highest heaven because he suffered unjustly. Though he did. He was not exalted to the highest heaven because he did it voluntarily, although he did. But he was exalted to the highest heaven because he did all that was necessary to carry the weight of the sin of the world so that God's people could be permitted to come home to him. What a great salvation! What an amazing story of grace. How can we ignore, how can we spurn such a great salvation? It doesn't come to everyone. It comes only to those who embrace it. Only to those who receive him. Only to those who see their need of it and welcome it into their lives. I pray that everyone here has done so or will do so today. Let us now come to the table of the Lord where we celebrate these very things we've been talking about. This very atoning work of our Lord. For in the bread we see how his body was broken. In the cup we see how his blood was spilled. And in the eating of these things, we see our responsibility to receive what he has provided and to find nourishment and satisfaction from what he has accomplished. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we read Isaiah 53 and we're in awe. What a Savior. Thank you for bearing the burden of our punishment. Thank you for being willing to be crushed for our iniquities. Thank you, O oh Lord for the peace that you have brought to us 
the forgiveness that you've brought to us, the salvation that you've brought to us by what you have done. And now, Lord, we come humbly to the table to celebrate these things. And we pray that you would work in our hearts even now to open our hearts to you. And Lord, if there are those here who bring a barrier of sin by which they are resisting you and holding you off, oh Lord, please dissolve that barrier. And in each one of us, dear Lord, dissolve whatever barriers there are and help us to fall at the foot of the cross and embrace the Savior who died there. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.